few things to say and to note uh, as y'all are turning there. Uh, One is uh, a confession. Uh, Sermon titles are often a best guess of where the sermon is going. Uh, And this sermon uh, took a different direction than I was expecting when I wrote the title that is in your bulletin. Uh, So you got a sermon title change, uh, and that is it's no longer in Christ, although we will talk about what it means to be in Christ. Uh, But the sermon title actually, for those of you who are punctilious note-takers, is The Gospel is Outside of You. The Gospel is Outside of You. We'll talk about what that means uh, in a bit. But as you are turning to Ephesians 1, let me just remind you of where we are. Last week we looked at Acts 19 and 20, which is the story of the Apostle Paul founding the church at Ephesus. Uh, The letter to the Ephesians was written about 10 years after that. So 10 years since Paul has departed from this church, he is in prison in Rome, and he is writing this letter to this church that he founded and to this church that he loves. And one of the things that's interesting about the book of Ephesians and Paul's letter to this church is that there's not really an issue that's identified. There's not a problem that he's writing to address, which means the letter in some ways has a a general feel. Uh, It gives us thoughts about the Christian life in general. It gives us thoughts about what it means for us to be the church, this beloved community that God has formed. And so over the coming weeks, we're going to look through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus Uh, And one of the things we'll note, uh, and a lot of commentators have pointed this out, is that the first three chapters of this letter are really focusing on what is true. There's a lot of deep theology in these first three chapters. We'll see that even here momentarily. Whereas chapters four to six are focused more on what it means to live out that theology, what it means to live in light of what Jesus has done for us. So we are going to wade right in uh, to the deep weeds of theology today uh, as we look at Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 14. This is God's word for us this morning. Listen to this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Friends, this is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand it. Uh, Father, we thank you that you haven't left us alone to figure out what to believe or how we should live as your people, but you've given us your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that as we look at this amazing passage, describing all of these things you've done for us in Christ, that you would send the Holy Spirit to us to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds. Father, show us Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. As I just mentioned to the kids Verses 3 to 14 has been helpfully broken up into different sentences by our translators. Uh, But in the original Greek, verses 3 to 14 is a single sentence. And it is an overwhelming and incessant declaration of what God has done for us. I read the list to the kids. I'm going to read it again to you. Listen to what God has done for you in Christ. He has blessed you. He has chosen you. He has predestined you. He has adopted you. He has redeemed you and forgiven you. He has lavished the riches of his grace upon you. He has made known to you his purposes. He has given you an inheritance and he has sealed you with the Holy Spirit. I think if we could boil all of that section of the Bible down into a single thought, it's simply this, and it's what we're going to explore this morning. Salvation is something God does. Salvation is something that God does. And there is so much we could say about what that means for us, looking at all of these different things God has done for us in verses 3 to 14, but we're going to focus on one of them. And we're going to focus on it because it's something I bet many of us have heard about, many of us think we know something about, and many of us might be deeply uncomfortable with this idea. And it's the idea we get in verses 4 and 5, that God has chosen us. Uh, Or it says in verse 5, God has predestined us. Uh, In other words, we are talking about the doctrine of predestination this morning. Uh, I will also call it the doctrine of election, uh, just because that's how I heard it most uh, in my theological training. And uh, so if you hear the words chosen, predestined or election this morning, those are all talking about the same thing. And what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of walk through this passage and we're going to think about what this is saying about God and think about what it means to say that God has chosen us in Christ. 
So here's the first question, and I just want to get it out of the way because it's probably the one that is most unpalatable to us. Does the doctrine of predestination mean that God has chosen some people for salvation and not chosen others? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Uh, God has chosen some for salvation and not chosen others for salvation. And you see this throughout the Bible. Even in Romans chapter 9, God says, or, or Paul says uh, that God has said, he, he's quoting from uh, the early parts of the Bible, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God gets to decide who he is merciful to. So that begs another question. Why is it that God would choose some people, but not others? Why does God choose some and not others? And again, the Bible is really clear about that. It is not based on anything about the people he chooses. It's not based on their greatness. It's not based on their sparkling personalities. It's not based on their foreseen actions or their foreseen faith. God doesn't choose them because he says or believes they're going to be sort of assets to his kingdom. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, Hey guys, God didn't choose you because you're awesome. He chose you because you're not. Because he wanted to shame those who are awesome. He picked people that aren't wise. He picked people that aren't of noble birth. Uh, he picked all of those to shame those who are powerful in the world. God doesn't choose us based on anything about us. There is nothing particular about you or about me that makes God choose to show mercy to us. In fact, the only answer we ever get to the question of why God chooses some and not others comes in verses 5 and in verse 11. It is the purpose or the counsel of God's will. In other words, God chooses people because he wants to. God doesn't choose others because he doesn't want to. It is the purpose or the counsel of his own will. So then, if we've established potentially here that God chooses some for salvation and not others, and he does that based on nothing in themselves, I think maybe another question we might have is why is election, why is predestination necessary? Why is it necessary that God choose to establish salvation in this way? Well, Paul answers that question just in the beginning of the next chapter. We'll look at it in a few weeks in more detail. But he says in chapter 2, verse 1, that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We're dead in our sin. On our own, apart from God's grace, we are dead. And I guess it's important to know, if you look at the Greek of verse 1 there in chapter 2, the word dead means uh, dead. It means dead. It doesn't mean slow. It doesn't mean weak. It doesn't mean that we need more effort or need improvement. It means dead. Which is why Paul says in Romans 8, verse 8, 
that those who are in the flesh cannot please God because they are dead in their sins. They can't want to do what is right. They can't want to choose to follow God. They can't even want to choose to be in relationship with God. On our own, we are dead in our sins and we are incapable of pleasing God. And so God chooses us because God is making a decision for us that we were ever unable to make for him. God makes a decision for us we were unable to make for him. We were dead in our sins. So what is it that we are chosen for? If we're chosen by God because he wants to, because we were dead in our sins and God wants to be merciful and he wants to show his grace, what is it that we are chosen for? We get the answer to that in verse 5. We are chosen for adoption as sons. And whenever you see uh, the word like sons or the word brothers in the New Testament, you can kind of add the uh, and daughters or and sisters because those were considered sort of inclusive terms that would encompass the entirety of the church. But I think Paul actually in verse 5 uses the word sons for an important reason. We were chosen for adoption as sons and in the ancient world, the inheritance of the estate always went to the firstborn son. We were chosen as sons. And so when you get down to verse 11 and Paul suddenly starts talking about an inheritance, you get a picture of why it is we were chosen for adoption. Because God wants to give us an inheritance. And we have that inheritance not because we're great, we have that inheritance not even because we've sort of worked our way into the family, but we have that inheritance because we are in Christ. Uh, we're going to spend a whole sermon in a few weeks talking about what it means to say we are in Christ. But this is a, a doctrine that theologians call union with Christ. And what it means is that in Christ, everything, that is true of Jesus becomes true of us. Everything that is true of him becomes true of us. This is how salvation works. His righteousness becomes true of us because we are united to him by the Holy Spirit. God looks at us and he sees the righteousness of Christ because we are united to him. And what is true of him becomes true of us. Now think about what the rest of the Bible says about who Jesus is. In Colossians 1, it says uh, that, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn of all creation. We are united to the firstborn of all creation. What is true of him becomes true of us. And we see in Romans 8, therefore, that we have become fellow heirs with Christ. What is true of him has become true of us. We have all of the rights and all of the privileges of the firstborn son of creation. We were chosen for an inheritance. But what is the inheritance? What is it? that we get 
in Christ? What is it that we get in union with Christ? What is the inheritance that would be coming to us as those who have the same rights and privileges of the firstborn son of all of creation? Well, we see it hinted at here in Ephesians 1. We see it hinted at in some other places as well in Paul's writings. In Ephesians 1, verse 10, uh, Paul says uh, part of his plan is to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. In Colossians 1, 19 and 20, Paul says that in Christ, God is reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And in Romans 4.13, Paul says the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world is fulfilled in Christ. What is the inheritance that you have in Christ? Everything. Everything. Your inheritance is all things. Your inheritance is the entire world. Your inheritance is to live in a world made new for all of eternity with your God. A world without crying or tears or brokenness or pain or suffering or sorrow or death. You will live in a world made new, the world that was supposed to exist before sin came into it. That is your inheritance in Christ And Paul says that the Holy Spirit that God has given you, even now, is the down payment on that inheritance. The Holy Spirit that God has given you, verse 14 says, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Friends, the Spirit dwelling in us is the presence of God with us. And it is the down payment on the moment that we will dwell with God for eternity in a world made new. You see that world described in Revelation 21 uh, and 22. And Revelation 22 5 talks about us dwelling with God. It says, We will need no light or lamp of sun, for the Lord God will be our light, and we will reign forever and ever. That's your inheritance. That is what God is giving you in Christ. The world made new. And we will possess it for all of eternity. So another question that you might have as we think about predestination, as we think about election, as we think about the fact that God has chosen some for salvation... And this is a question that that naturally comes up in this conversation. What does this doctrine do to the need for evangelism or to the need for missions? What does it mean? If God has chosen some for salvation but not others, why should we even worry about sharing the gospel with people? Well, friends, the story of the Bible, I think, just gives a baseline answer for that. And the whole story of the Bible from the beginning to the end is the story of God choosing a people and redeeming them and blessing them 
and then sending them to be a blessing to others. We see that all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham to be the family in which he would work out his purposes of salvation for the world. Listen to what he says in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." Friends, what Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The whole Bible teaching on blessing is in play there. And blessing is never just something God gives us for our benefit. Blessing is never just like sitting in a hot tub and just enjoying things without doing something. God always blesses in order that his people would be a blessing. To others, Just like he says to Abram, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. When we think about predestination, when we think about election, when we think about God choosing some for salvation, we have to realize we are predestined not just to the privilege of salvation, we are predestined and chosen to the responsibility of being part of what God is doing in the world. We are chosen to be a part of God's mission to fill the earth with his glory. And that's why Paul says in verse 5 that the very purpose of election is that we would be holy and we would be blameless because we are meant to be in the world as pictures of God's grace and his goodness. We are supposed to be a picture of human life as it was meant to be. That is the very purpose of election. And thus, election and predestination is not just about us getting some benefit from God. It's actually the engine for us to think about missions. It's the engine for us to think about evangelism. Because the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination relieves us of the pressure of saving people. We can't do it. We can't present the gospel compellingly enough for people to be delivered from death. Only God can make dead people alive. It is God who saves, not us. In the 1600s, a church council was convened to wrestle through some of these issues. It's now known as the Synod of Dort, uh, a lovely name. Uh, and they were wrestling through the issues of predestination. They were wrestling with the question about, like, what does it mean for preaching the gospel? What does it mean for missions and evangelism? And here's what they say that the doctrine of predestination means for uh, evangelism and missions. They say this. Moreover, it is the promise of the gospel that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have eternal life. This promise together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be announced and declared without differentiation or discrimination to all nations and people to whom God in his good pleasure 
sends the gospel. The doctrine of predestination encourages us to go and preach the gospel everywhere to people without differentiation or discrimination. In fact, an earlier English translation of this same paragraph says that because of predestination, we should go and preach the gospel promiscuously. We don't use the word promiscuous like that much anymore, which is probably why this translation changed the word. But it basically means preaching to everyone who will hear. It means preaching the good news that Jesus saves sinners. Preaching to all who will come and repent. So how do you know? How do you know if you are chosen by God for salvation? I think understanding and looking at the doctrine of predestination in the wrong way sometimes invites speculation and anxiety about whether or not we are kind of on the list. And friends, that is not the point of the doctrine of predestination. The, the point is not to obsess about whether or not secretly in the mind of God we are on the list of people he has chosen for salvation. That's not Paul's pastoral purpose here in Ephesians 1, and we'll talk more about that in coming weeks. But, but the point is, election looks like faith and repentance and obedience. That's what predestination looks like. Predestination doesn't look like needing to know uh, the mind of God, things he hasn't chosen to reveal to us. God has told us that a mark of us being his people is that we have faith in Christ, that we turn away from our sins, and that we seek to walk in obedience. That's why it's amazing and, and helpful that the only thing that we do in any of verses 3 to 14 is hear and believe. That's what Paul says in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is about the fact that we are entirely passive in our salvation. It is something God has done. And to understand if we have been chosen by God, we only have to look and see if we trust in Christ, turn from our sin, and walk in obedience. All we do is hear and believe. And before we get too proud or excited about ourselves for having heard and believed, in chapter 2, Paul is going to remind us that faith itself is something God gives us. So it's not even like we were able to kind of do that on our own. We hear and believe. So how do we respond? How do we respond to the doctrine of election? Three really quick things. Number one, if you are here this morning and you're a Christian, if you have trusted in Christ, have turned away from your sin and are striving to walk in obedience, the doctrine of election means you should be profoundly humble. You should be humble. Because you're not a Christian because you're smarter than other people. You're not a Christian because you're more honest than other people or you're more willing to sort of uh, be, receive God's grace than other people. 
You're not a Christian because you're more gifted than other people or because you're more of an asset to the kingdom than other people might be. You are in Christ only because God in his mercy and his love chose to draw you to himself. We must be humble. That's the point of predestination. A second thing, if you're a Christian here this morning, that predestination should work in your heart is you should praise the glorious grace of God, which Paul does multiple times in this passage. In verse 6, he says, All of this is to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The riches of God's grace have been lavished upon us in Christ. Friends, the doctrine of predestination means that before God said, let there be light. Before he said in verse 4, before the foundation of the world, before God said, let there be light, you were in his heart and your name was on his lips. Salvation from the first to the last is about God's grace. And here's the third thing, the third response to this doctrine. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet trusted in Christ, the question is, do you want to be chosen by God? And if you want to be, the answer is simple. Believe in Christ and turn away from your sin. Believe in Christ. Believe that he lived the life that you could never live and he died the death on the cross that you could never die, an atoning death that cleanses us of our sin. And he rose again in triumph over sin and death. And because of that, you can be saved. You can be restored to fellowship with your heavenly father. If you believe in Christ and turn away from your sin, you too have been chosen by God. You see, friends, the gospel is ultimately about what God has done for us in Christ, not about what we might do for him. The gospel is that God saves us, not that God makes us savable. It is entirely something he has done for us. In the 1500s, Martin Luther uh, was hiding out in a castle in Germany, translating the New Testament from Latin and Greek into German so that the Christian churches in Germany could uh, read the Bible in their own languages. And one of his good friends named Philip Melanchthon uh, was writing to him constantly while he was in this tower in Wartburg uh, translating the, the New Testament. And Melanchthon was known for being kind of a timid guy. Uh, he was easily prone to despair. He was prone to self-doubt and worry and anxiety. And he wrote a letter one day to Martin Luther that said, Martin, I'm concerned that I haven't trusted Christ enough. That I haven't actually believed strongly enough to be saved. And that I'm worried that I'm not actually in Christ because my faith is so inconsistent and it's so uh, unconstant. Like I'm just worried that I haven't trusted Christ enough. And Luther's response is beautiful. He says, Melanchthon, go, sin bravely. Go to the cross even more bravely because the gospel is outside of us. The whole gospel is outside 
of us. And Luther's point in saying this, his point in this counsel is that the hope of the gospel is not in how we receive the good news of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is not pointing us to how strong our faith is or how consistent our faith is. Our hope in the gospel is not about how obedient we are over time. The point of all of this is that God started the relationship. God sustains the relationship and God completes the relationship. Paul says in Philippians 1, He who started the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And nothing, Paul says, can separate us from his love. Friends, the point of predestination, if you remember nothing else from this morning, is simply this. You didn't start the relationship and you can't mess it up. The gospel is outside of you. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you this morning feeling the weight of your word. And Lord, these truths can be hard for us to hear. They grate against some of our sensibilities. Lord, we delight that you are sovereign over everything, up to and including our salvation. Lord, we thank you that you made a choice for us that we could never make for you. We thank you that you started the relationship, you sustained the relationship, and you will complete this relationship in your grace for us in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the inheritance we have, and we pray that you would help us to live faithfully until the day that we possess that inheritance fully. Lord, even now as we come to your table, shape your faithfulness in us. Shape faith and repentance and obedience in us. Make us humble. Make us praise you. Overwhelm us with the glory and goodness of your grace. Lord, take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to anchor us in Christ. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.